Well, welcome to Answers for Elders. I'm Chuck Olmstead, and uh, with me today at Patriots Landing is Gil Conforti. He's a retired uh, lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army. Uh, Gil, welcome to Answers for Elders. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you and I just had an opportunity to meet, and uh, you live down here in the uh, DuPont area, near DuPont, and uh, we just wanted to hear your story today. So, uh, I always like to have stories with a beginning, and so where is your beginning as far as your life is concerned? My uh, my beginning was in a small town or a mid-sized town in, in Massachusetts called Fall River, which was at one time the textile capital of uh, the United States, and due to union problems and so on, as we moved into the 50s, became a lesser important textile engineering town. Uh, but I was born in 1935. Uh, my uh, elementary school was in an Irish Catholic school in, uh, in Fall River, and so was my high school. Uh, unfortunately, in the, uh, my sophomore year, maybe junior year in high school, my father passed away, which mm-hmm. left me as the oldest child in, in an Italian family, which meant I helped support the family from that point on. So 35, uh, so that would have been a little bit after the war when your pe- dad passed away. Yes, yeah. uh, like 52, mm-hmm. 51, 52. Okay. Uh, so I went to work at that point in time and, uh, and helped support the family, which uh, uh, kind of foreclosed any opportunity at that time to go to college. I had to defer that until later. But one of the things I did do seven days after my 17th birthday uh, I joined the Massachusetts National Guard, uh, primarily uh, not patriotically motivated, but primarily to get uh, that check every three months for attending the drills. Uh, and I found that I enjoyed what I was doing, uh, was uh, alerted and put on a couple of deployments internally to the state for hurricane relief and that kind of thing, and and liked the way that all transpired. So in January of 1955, I enlisted in the regular army. Uh, Again, there are some ulterior motives there. The GI Bill from Korea was running out at the end of that month. So enlisting when I did enlist uh, made me eligible for that bill, even though I was not a participant in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first overseas assignment, however, was in Korea. And I spent uh, uh, 16 months in the 24th Infantry Division, uh, just north of Seoul, almost on the uh, on the uh, demarcation line. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent 16 years there and and kind of learned my trade. Went from uh, went from being a private E2 when I arrived there uh, to leaving there 16 months later as a staff sergeant. So uh, again, an ulterior motive there. I went over on a troop ship, and it took me a good three to five days to get my sea legs. And I vowed that I was not going to go through that experience again. So by making sergeant, I was able to fly home as opposed to coming home by troop ship. I understand. So I, I, I enjoyed that aspect of the tour. And how long were you there? 16 months Six, at that time. Uh-huh. Uh, the the tour was, was based upon uh, the medical evaluation that beyond 16 months, uh, you were prone to get some kind of major illness because of the the war and the way things had uh, been devastated during the course of the war. And, and, and What the, was Korea 
the country like uh, at that time? Had it had it uh, that was about two years after the war ended. So uh, was the country getting back on its feet, or what was the what were the conditions like? Devastated, agricultural, uh, very very few major routes of communication, uh, a lot of emphasis on, uh, on on rebuilding, restructuring the political system, but uh, not any great progress made until significantly later. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another life, I happened to go back there in 1988 and several times thereafter and was amazed at the transformation that had occurred. Uh, but still, at the downtown train station, which is where we got off, if we got, were lucky enough to get a weekend passed when I was there the first time, directly across the street was the USO, which gave out beds to people that came down on a three-day pass at, at a cost of $1.50 in those days. <laughs> And the walls were still pockmarked with 50 caliber machine wow. gun bullets, and that was into the 90s that, that, that they had not repaired that. Hmm. So, uh, was it still? Uh, were tensions still pretty high even two years since? You know, some people who who don't remember history don't realize that that the war didn't end. It was just it a, was an armistice. An armistice, and so were the tensions still high with the North? Uh, to, to a great degree, yes. Uh, we were still carrying live ammunition and weapons when we, uh, when we were performing our duties. Uh, and we had to check them in as you went into the mess hall to eat. You checked it in a rack and it was locked and you picked it up on the way out. So uh, we were still doing fence line patrols at night because there were uh, what we defined as slicky boys that were all over the area that would sneak in under the wire and, and, and pilfer tents and other places. When I first got there, there were no permanent buildings. We all lived in squad tents, and we were had bunkered on the side of the hill. Uh, we built our own uh, Quonset hut, if you will, for shelter. Uh, built our own mess hall. The mess hall was still there when I went back in 1988. Uh, in fact, the DMZ still looked the same as it looked in 1955 and 56 wow. when I went back in 1988. Mm-hmm. And that had to do with the uh, the mechanism of, of the armistice in which you couldn't significantly improve any of the positions that you were in when the armistice was signed. So it's, uh, it was an interest, interesting time. So after 16 months, it's uh, by then 1957, what happens next? Well, I, I went back to another infantry unit at uh, Fort Devens, Massachusetts, uh, the 74th Regimental Combat Team, which later became the 4th Regimental Combat Team, which later became the 2nd Infantry Brigade of the 5th Mechanized Division. So I, I spent, uh, well, let's see, I got there in March of 1957 and uh, served in an infantry unit there for, for the two years plus and ended up going to OCS in 1959 from, from Fort Devons. The significant part of the Devons assignment is I met and married my wife, who has since passed away. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was a significant aspect of, of that part of the, my military career. Had you always thought when you joined the service that you, it would be a career? No. In fact, I, uh, I enlisted for three years, and at the end of the three years I was at Fort Devons, uh, and I came down on orders to go to Germany. But in order to go to Germany to fulfill those orders, since I had a short time left, I had to voluntarily extend, uh, and I did for a year. Uh, and then I re-enlisted. 
I'm, I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself. I re-enlisted first for three years. Mm -hmm. Then I had to extend for another year to get to Germany because I was already into the first year of that three-year enlistment. Uh, and I did that. And then OCS orders came down, which negated everything. So in reality, from a financial standpoint, I should have re-enlisted for six years because I didn't have to pay anything back after I got commissioned. I see. So, But that uh, that's the facet of that story that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I went went to infantry OCS from, from there, Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, got commissioned and was reassigned to Fort Dix, New Jersey uh, as a basic training platoon leader. Uh, did that for about a year, then was an instructor on... Uh, on, co on committee system that, that they had there that gave all the instruction to recruits. I had the machine gun committee, which consisted of an indoor range and then two outdoor, two ranges at the furthest extent of Fort, uh, Fort Dix. So they, that was pretty chilly in the wintertime. Uh, <laughs> I bet. But spent, uh, spent the better part of uh, two years there. And in... Uh, October of 1961, I got orders assigning me to the Army Language School for a, a one-year course in the Persian language. So I uh, packed up and left and traveled Route 66 out to the, the glorious west and uh, ended up in Monterey. And in, in a, Actually, I, I lived in Pacific Grove for the first four or five months in a rented apartment. And then quarters became available at Fort Ord, so I moved into quarters there, and my third child was born wow. at Fort Ord. A little bit different than the East Coast, I'm sure. A little bit different and, <laughs> uh, and, and a lot more fun. So what was the mindset of the, of the uh, Army at that time going uh, with language school for Persian? Obviously, there was... Um, you know, there was a design for that. Were they seeing more um, activity happening in the Middle East? Well, I think it was more that they wanted to create a bigger footprint in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And uh, as an example of that, my subsequent assignment was to the t uh, 10th Special Forces Group in Bad Tolls, Germany. And they had the area responsibility for Iran and that portion of the Middle East. In fact, the B detachment that I was assigned to was in country when I got to Bad Tolz in Germany. And so I waited there for a month for them to get back before anything was ever done. And I was assigned there as a linguist, and I had had some special psyops training. Uh, so that was the purpose of the assignment, and they had a program designed to send people in uh, to augment the special forces group in those skills. Well, about three months later, the requirement went away, and I got reassigned, so I went to Berlin, Germany for three years and was in Berlin during the, the time of the wall, mm. commanded a rifle company in the Berlin Brigade and, uh, and did some staff work. Interestingly, interestingly enough, the staff work that I had uh, entailed being the, the desk officer for Spandau Prison, which had three war criminals in it at that time, significantly led by Rudolf Hess, mm. Werner von Schirach, who, who was the head of the Hitler Youth, and uh, Rudolf Speer, who was the industrialist that, uh, that managed the, the arms uh, manufacturing system. So uh, I also was the desk officer for the tripartite, tripartite staff, 
and I represented the U.S. on matters of importance to the uh, the European commander and so on. Interesting. Well, you're listening to an interview with Gil Conforti. He's a retired lieutenant uh, colonel, U.S. Army, and uh, we're, we're sharing about his experience um, in the late 50s, early 60s as, uh, as an officer in the Army. Yeah. So uh, were you proficient in Persian? Uh, I was when I graduated. In fact, uh, I, I would, they give out one interpreter's MOS in each class, or mm-hmm. at least in the Persian language, and I got the interpreter's MOS in, in, in my class. And uh, not because I had any special skills, but because I worked my tail off getting the language down. <laughs> uh, and then I didn't get to the country until six years later. Which would have been tough because there's a yeah. lot of things you probably forgot more than you learned in some ways. Huh? And, that, and that's very true. And, yeah. and uh, many of many of the books that I had and kept to try to review to get on, uh, get back up to speed, uh, were not not useful because the idiom had changed. Mm. And over the course of the time that I'd been away from the language, you know, different things had happened within the language that, that made what I knew dated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I was able I was able to make myself known when I needed things, and I could uh, converse enough to get my point across. Yeah. So now today, when you see something coming out of Iran on TV or that sort of thing, uh, is it recognizable to you? Words are mm-hmm. uh, not not uh, not the whole memory track, but uh, but I can pick out words. I can get a sensing of some things, not mm-hmm. a lot of things anymore, mm-hmm. because. Uh, I guess the level I was trained to was probably a, a sophomore year, a high school level. And uh, the people that we're listening to on the television are a little more advanced than that. Right, right. So after Germany, what happens next? Uh, back to the career course at uh, Fort Benning uh, and then to Fort Bragg for about five months where I was supposed to be an instructor at the Special Warfare School. However, when they called uh, uh, military personnel to find out how long they'd have me, they were told it's four months, he's going to Vietnam on his first trip. So I uh, bought a house, got the family settled, and prepared for a Vietnam trip. Wow, and that year was what? 1967. Right in the middle of some of the toughest fighting going on. And I I was assigned to uh, the, the 1st Infantry Division, the big red one, as a company commander in the 1st of the 28th Infantry and did uh, about a third of my tour in that position and then was reassigned to a, a, a traveling road show that went from firebase to firebase, taking new people who were assigned to the division and providing them some training in how the division did things so that when they went out with their units, they could uh, they could perform effectively. Mm-hmm. I did that for about four months, got promoted to major, so I got promoted out of that job. And then I was a deputy chief of staff for the division for the remainder of that first tour. So, And a tour was typically how long? One year. One year? Yeah. So did you just did you do just one tour in, in Vietnam? I did two. The, mm-hmm. My first tour was with the 1st Division. My uh, second tour was down in the Delta with the Delta Regional Assistance Command. And I was a plans officer for about a month, and I got pulled out of the, put out, pulled out of the cycle, and became the special assistant for management for the commanding general, mm-hmm. and did that for my second tour. Uh, 
significant event there was that we phased down the Delta from about 20,000 troops to more like 5,000 by the end of the tour, and, and the installations went from about 150 down to about 50. Hmm. So it was a, a it was a phase down at that time, and s- several units came out of Vietnam in that same year. So yeah, yeah. Well, um, now that you see uh, 50 years later, well, that was was that 50 40 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Vietnam. What are your thoughts as far as uh, have you ever been able to go back to the country? And, and, and in reality, I, I have no desire to go back. I uh, I've, I've got some memories that I prefer not to hmm. reawaken. Yeah, I understand. I understand. So uh, your family's growing at that time. You said three kids. Three kids. Yeah. So they're they were growing. How old were they back uh, when you were in oh. Vietnam? Not, let's see. Oldest who was born in '59, so mm-hmm. seven. Yeah, yeah. Seven, five, and four. Yeah. So that reunion coming back from Vietnam, I'm sure, was pretty sweet. It was. Uh, it was. It was poignant in the sense that we were all getting back together again, but it was also disruptive in the sense that we were getting ready to move again, and this time to another unknown, both for me and for the family. Uh, I, that was when I had my two-year tour in Iran from '68 to '70. Wow! So uh, that was my that was my accompanied tour after my hardship tour in combat. So an accompanied tour means your family goes with you. Yes. And so your younger children, preteens, are on their way to Iran. Uh, what what city? We were in Tehran as as a base, and that's where the family was. But I was the operations advisor to the Imperial Iranian Ground Forces. And as a result, I traveled about 15 days a month, uh, uh, either on exercises with a unit, uh, either on a reconnaissance uh, of various installations, visiting training centers, looking at the territorial forces and how they were deployed along the the northern tier with Russia. that. So was at that time, was the Shah in power at the that Shah time? The Shah was in power. Things okay. were very, very liberal. Uh, I, uh, although I'm sure that the population at large was not supportive of that, uh, we were able to go to a restaurant and have a bottle of wine or and, and a, a good meal, and, and there were no restrictions on our travels. And so the view of Americans at that time was pretty good? Fairly good. We were providing a lot of equipment to the to the ground forces. We were pri- providing a lot of training to the to the forces of all services. Uh, unique unique experience uh, as a part of that tour. I was able to go with an Iranian rifle company, who had the mission of going from Kermanshah, which is in the northwest of the country, down along the, the mountain range that divides Iraq and Iran to a place called Desfil, which is in the middle of the central desert, turning west, turning east at that point until we hit the town of Shiraz, which was the major uh, city in that area, dropping south to Bandar Bushir on the Persian Gulf, meet, marrying up with a Navy ship and doing an amphibious assault on Karg Island in the middle of the Persian Gulf. Wow. So that was fun. I, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of enjoyed that. Yeah. So did your family um, enjoy Iran? They did. The, 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 living, the living was good. 
uh, we were afforded uh, excess housing allowances and other things to uh, accommodate the cost of living. The, the kids, the schooling was good. Mm-hmm. The teachers were embassy employees. Uh, the classes were set up so that they were conducive to learning not only uh, what they were teaching as a part of the, the American curriculum, but also the culture and the history of the country. So it uh, it was well done. Yeah, yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. And uh, uh, how did you finish up your your first career as a in the military? I uh, I had commanded a, an infantry battalion out at Fort Lewis, and I had been selected to go to the Army War College. So I went to the War College. Concurrently got my master's degree in public administration uh, at Shippensburg State University. Uh, And it was at that transition point that uh, I I had the opportunity to do the uh, the, uh, internship for completion of my master's degree in the mayor's office of the city of Tacoma. So I actually lived at home for about four or five weeks, which was the length of that tour, and then went to my next assignment, which was the Pentagon. Mm. So I, my last duty assignment was as the executive to the director of training at, uh, in DA DesOps. Uh, and I retired from there be, partially because the mayor had offered me a job here. So I came back here and went to work for the mayor for a year. And what year was that? Uh, that was 1981. And I worked for him through 19. 19- 1981 into 1982. I see. Yeah. And then things didn't look too good to me at that point, so I decided that that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I went in the insurance business for a couple of years uh-huh. and did okay with that, but they were developing a system that I had been involved in the origination of at Fort Lewis, which was a test bed for a lot of things at that time, you may recall. Uh, and I was asked to come back in and run that program, and I did. I mm-hmm. worked for another 13 years at Fort Lewis, and we instituted a, a training system that developed hardware and software packages that supported training of a variety of types. The one that I worked on initially had to do with training division commanders, two-star generals, and their staffs, and their subordinate commanders and three-star generals, the corps commanders and their division commanders and staff. And it was a, uh, a software system that was embellished to incorporate uh, terrain f- uh, files that, that would allow you to actually maneuver on, on the terrain that you'd be employed on, along with the units that you would be used, and they'd be represented in the computer, and, and the computer would make their actions realistic. Interesting. So I did that for about 13 years. So you were really at some of the beginning stages of technology, integrating technology into the military. Yes. And and that would have, I'm sure it's fascinating for you to see the infancy now as it's beginning to mature, what technology is doing for the military. In actuality, uh, that system that was developed while I had the simulation center out here, was the system that that has been used to prepare for Desert Storm, for example, uh, the cracking of the berm uh, that the Marine Corps was involved in in that operation, was was tested and evaluated 
uh, on a system that was developed at my simulation center out here in conjunction with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. Uh, we, we dealt with jet propulsion laboratories in Pasadena. Uh, I am sure that, the, uh, that anybody who's ever been through a battle command training pro program rotation knows what that's like, and that, the first one of those for the active component was run out here, and the first one of those for the reserve component was run out here. And uh, the systems have evolved in such a way now that uh, all the activities that have, that have occurred in Afghanistan and Iraq and so on have focused the attention on uh, employment and deployment in the field. What we're hap what's happening now is, since much of that is toning down, there's got to be a need to deal with the Chinas and the Russias and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the other, you know, peer competitors that we have in the world. And the computer system train, system supported training is being renovated and re-evolving into a, a major player in, in, in the training field again. Well, it's, it's interesting to see, and I'm sure as a civilian, I would be, and most of the people listening would be shocked at the um, the cyber warfare that's going on on a daily basis, not only against the military but against business as well by by foreign powers. So it, it is, you know, but to be a part of that and to be a part of, of the beginnings of that, I'm sure, was pretty gratifying. Yeah, and, and I think that what, what we've developed is the system of training first and the means to do that training to include being able to communicate with a guy in the field from a base back here uh, and, and evolve your systems and your programs based upon his ability to do what he does in the field mm -hmm. and thereby improve what he does by testing it in a, in a computer in a no-threat no environment uh, and uh, applying the lessons learned to how he operates in the field. Yeah. Well, I'm sure even, and I don't know if you were ever involved with drone technology, some of that. But, I was not. But just to see what they're able to accomplish now through drones and, and even with the Army, I'm sure with, with, the, with the foot soldier being able to use various drones to accomplish their mission? I, I think the drone technology is the larger scale drone is, is a, an Air Force issue. The, the, the smaller drone that, that you use for gathering intelligence, uh, terrain recognition, and so on is, is done down to the infantry squad mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it is an, an, an exciting thing to watch evolve. What's going to be more exciting is watching how the defensive systems and the counter systems are developed in the cyber world uh, to to make our systems more secure and less less penetrable. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you. Uh, after you retired uh, working at Fort Lewis, um, what what uh, transitioned in your life then? Well, I, I started playing a lot of golf, <laughs> going to the gym a lot. Good. Uh, but uh, I, I did for about five years until that's about the lifespan of your contacts. Until my contacts ran out, I did do some work with a local firm called uh, New Definitions Incorporated. And as a part of that, we did some work with the Czech government. I got to see Czechoslovakia for the first time, uh, which was really interesting in, in understanding how young and how dynamic a population that country has. 
they were very interested in what we were doing and, and on top of a lot of it and, and ahead of us in, in some things. <clears throat> so it, it, that, that was fun. Yeah. I did that for about five years and then basically did a lot of reading and a lot of golf playing. And, yeah, and yeah. <clears throat> just generally doing a living that I couldn't do for the, the 28 years I spent in the Army <laughs> and the 13 years as a civilian. I understand. Well, you seem like you're still in good health and uh, and active, and that's well, a good we're, thing. We're trying. Yeah. Well, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Gil Conforti, I want to thank you for joining us today on Answers for Elders Radio and being uh, and sharing your story. I promise you one anecdote. That's right. You were going to tell me uh, Con, Con, Conforti. Yeah. Every time I went to a training conference in Reno. Well, one time when I was in a helicopter with the assistant division commander of, of the division out here at Fort Lewis, I, I was asked the question, do you have any relations in Nevada? And coming from the East Coast, that didn't register at all on me at that time. But come to find out that there is a house of ill repute in Nevada, in Reno, that's run by a Joe Conforti. I see. His last name is spelt with an E as opposed to an I. And I get queried on that all the time. <laughs> I understand. Well, uh, probably a distant relative some, somehow. It's got to be. It's got to be the same family tree because we all came over here about the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for. I appreciate the opportunity. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>